Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Charlie, is this our first podcast since you were on vacation or our second? I can't quite remember. The summer is kind of jumbling up together in my head. First. First. How was your vacation then? It was good. It was good. We went to Florida. Your parents from England came to enjoy the cool weather in Florida. That's right. That's right. And in fact, they lucked out with the weather because it was absolutely perfect. This time of the year can often bring with it Jurassic Park star thunderstorms, but it (laughs) just didn't. It was sunny for two whole weeks. Very nice. Well, I hope they um, had a good time. You know, before we get off on our our usual discussion here, funny thing this morning, I just got off the phone with um, a reporter at the New York Post who wanted to talk to me about um, Starbucks uh, bathrooms. You know, funny thing was I mentioned them as an example of private companies creating public goods in, in a book I wrote some years ago. And then I've mentioned them from time to time in the writing I've done about you know, homelessness and uh, urban problems. So I'm on someone's list as the guy you call to talk to about Starbucks toilets, because this is not the first reporter who has uh, called to want to talk to me about that. <laughs> so, you know, I used to think for a while that the first line in my obituary was going to be about taking a phone away from a lady in a theater. And then for a while, I thought the first line in my obituary would be getting fired from a job on my third day there. But I'm starting to suspect the first line of my obituary is going to be about toilets and Starbucks. Wow, that's the key to journalistic longevity, I'm told, is to specialize, find an area of expertise and stick to it. So there you go. All right, now I'll look forward to your forthcoming roller coasters book then. Absolutely. Actually, you joke, but I have been flirting with this. I have been flirting with this idea for a while, yeah. You definitely should. That would be awesome. I would... uh, it would be the only book I would ever read about roller coasters. Well, I, I wouldn't want to do it as a dry book about roller coasters. I have some ideas. but uh, You can't write like a dry scholarly book about roller coasters. That would just be absurd. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I thought we'd talk some about the FBI and the uh, IRS today. And um, I think I've got an advantage on you in this discussion in that I've probably been in a lot more tax trouble in my life than you ever have been. And I'm sure I've been arrested more times than you have. But um, we'll, we'll get back to that in a second. So I, I just actually have a piece about the IRS situation about to come up on National Review this afternoon. It'll probably be up by the time this podcast comes out. And um, I think that uh, you and I maybe have a, a, an interesting, um, slightly different differences in point of view on this in that I'm entirely open to the IRS adding to its payroll if that's what's necessary for the agency to get its job done i'm also much more open to the idea that it could do its job better with about half as many employees as it has which i'll get back to in a second but i don't think that the issue is or ever has been the size of its staff and i've often observed that the kind of republican non-policy on this has been well, let's see if we can just kind of cripple the agency to make it less of a um, nuisance to the American public, because that's easier than actually reforming the tax code, reforming the agency, and reforming the fiscal uh, side of our national government, which is ultimately the root of all this stuff. But here's an observation for you, um, and this will not surprise you, but when I was thinking about the IRS and thinking about, well, does it have enough people? Does it not have enough people? I started looking at other tax agencies around the world. And um, I went first, of course, to Switzerland, which is a well-governed country, but also one that has a lot of taxes. You know, they've got an income tax, they've got a wealth tax, they've got a VAT, 
They've got real estate transfer taxes and things like that. And if we are successful, if the Biden administration is successful at expanding the IRS, we're going to have about five times as many federal tax employees per capita as uh, Switzerland does. We already have a little bit more than twice as many by my, my rough estimate. And that to me is kind of interesting. So they've got a far smaller tax collection force, at least at the federal level. But then when you dig into it, there's some interesting um, secondary observations there. So one, of course, is no surprise, they've got a much higher level of tax compliance than uh, we do. But that tends to be true of you know the Swiss regulatory uh, environment in general, which is, I think you and I would probably agree, more of a cultural thing. But also there is an interesting uh, kind of devolution in their revenue practice in that the income tax is mostly collected at the canton level. So at the, you know, their equivalent of our, our states, although they're closer in size to, to counties. Um, so their national tax authority kind of oversees that, but the collection is done at the uh, kind of state and local level. The revenue, most of it then is transferred to the national government, although I think the locals keep uh, 17% of it, something like that. So we could certainly um, find examples around the world. And we've probably, it, it's hard to tell sometimes with some of the, the numbers, but it looks to me like we've probably got more uh, at, at the national government level uh, revenue collectors per capita than, say, France does or Spain or, you know, most of um, the typical kind of Western European uh, example. So while I think that the IRS should be staffed at whatever level is necessary for it to do the job that we have tasked it with doing, the evidence, at least in terms of comparison with other advanced uh, liberal democratic countries, suggests that it's already got more employees relative to the size of its population than than most other countries do. And you would think they would be able to go the other way, right? There would be some economies of scale in something like that. So I don't really think that the headcount is the issue. I think that the there are three issues here, really. The agency itself is a problem. Um, the IRS has longstanding problems with various kinds of corruption and politicization. Um, this goes way, way back in its history, and it crops up from time to time. And that is something that has to be overseen and dealt with, although I suspect that we would have similar problems at any agency uh, that was entrusted to do the things that the IRS does, just the powers that you would have to give such an agency invite abuse in much the same way that every American, every big city police department in this country has at one time or another been penetrated by organized crime. Um, doesn't mean we stop having police, but you, you do have to keep an eye on that. The... Uh, but, you know, reforming the agency itself is would be the relatively easy thing to do, I think. The harder things are actually reforming the tax code, which shapes what powers you have to give the agency and um, and its incentives. And then the tax code, of course, is driven to some extent by the uh, fiscal situation. So ultimately, you know, what we're going to collect in taxes has to be uh, in some way um, bear some kind of relationship to to the money we spend in the long run, even though we, we finance stuff through through deficits in the short run. But you had an observation on the um, editors that I thought we might talk about a little bit too, which I thought was interesting, which is one of the problems with the IRS isn't just the agency and its institutional culture, but kind of its business model of choosing audits based not on any reasonable suspicion that something has been done wrong, 
but simply based on deviations from normative behavior as determined by algorithms that it uses in its analytic process. There's a kind of minority report pre-crime uh, aspect to it. And that's why I'm worried by the increase in staff. It's not that I don't think that the IRS should be able to conduct audits. If you're going to have income taxes, I'd rather we didn't, but we do. Yeah. Well, but I should go ahead and say that right now, by the way, I don't think that um, the proposed expansion of the IRS is in any way a useful reform measure. I think the Biden administration is basically treating it as a jobs program, but go ahead. Suppose you had a city that was dangerous and you looked at the statistics and you said, you know, there's so much crime here that we need more police officers. We're not answering calls in a timely way. We don't have enough officers on the beat. If we had more people in this district of the city, then maybe we would have been able to stop this, this and that. I don't have to imagine that, Charlie. Well, there you are. So what's the what's the logical response to that? The logical response, and I think most people, not the defund the police types, but most people would agree, is to say let's hire more police officers. Because we have crimes, and we are mopping up instead of preventing or responding to them. There is a difference between that and the IRS. And that difference is that while it may be true that lots of people cheat on their taxes, I don't know, the IRS doesn't know who those people are. It doesn't have statistics. Because unlike with, say, rape or murder or assault or burglary, people don't file reports when they successfully cheat on their taxes. They don't say, why didn't you come around? I was busy cheating. I was filling it in. Wrong. <laughs> So the IRS is guessing, and in so doing, it is employing not a system of pre-crime, but a system of randomly selected investigation. Yeah. And I think that's alarming. I think that's out of the norm. And I wrote a corner post in which I posed this question to a finance writer named Adam Markowitz, who had said he didn't know why anyone was worried about the prospect of an IRS audit, which we'll come on to in a moment. <laughs> but yeah. my point was that in any other circumstance, if an agency charged with investigating crimes said, there's too much crime, we are going to randomly flag people based on abnormal behavior. And it's worth saying, abnormal here does not mean criminal. It doesn't even mean the implication of criminality. It means deviations from mathematical norms, more given in charity donations, uh, a home office that is bigger than usual, that uh, unprecedented for you use of travel, this sort of stuff. We're going to look for people whose behavior deviates from the norm, and then we're going to investigate them to see if they've committed any crimes. I think most people would say, I don't like that. That sounds a little totalitarian. And uh, I think what we have seen uh, in the last week or so since this was announced is that for many people, the IRS occupies a different space within the system. They don't see it as an enforcement agency, even as they 
make the case for it needing more money and more power and uh, to go after people who've broken the law, they think of it in a different way than they would think about the FBI or your local police department. And I don't. And so yeah. when, when I object to the hiring of Some 87... Some people see it as a sort of social justice agency. Right. You know, the idea here is to make sure that rich people are, are you know, paying their fair share in the inevitable stupid phrase. If I could interrupt for just a second, yeah. I think maybe an interesting way of looking at this is that... Um, so if I were making the IRS's case for it, I would say that it's, um, you know, mathematical modeling and auditing practices are essentially surveillance. And that if you had a police department that had statistical reason to believe that there's more crime at this intersection at this time of day in these circumstances, and they stepped up their patrols there, we would say, well, that's a completely reasonable thing to do, right? The difference is that the, you know, the character of the surveillance that the IRS engages in and that your interactions with the IRS are so um, inherently invasive that um, it's just, it's, it's, it's a different thing from, you know, rolling some police cruises out into the corner. And this really gets to a, a kind of, you know, problem in our life in that, um, you know, what the police do typically is surveillance in public places. What the IRS does is always, you know, almost always necessarily private. And, um, it's a really tricky thing to create an agency that can do the things that the IRS needs to do and that has the powers to do its job without just making it by necessity almost a, a monstrosity of, um, of um, privacy invasion. But it's also worth reiterating that the IRS cannot do what you just described, which is to find the equivalent of a dangerous corner in a city and surveil it more. The, the analogy here would be with, say, speeding. So in Britain, the British government knows that people drive over the speed limit. Uh, they don't know who's going to do it, though, uh, partly because people do on some days and don't on others, partly because there are millions and millions of motorists, partly because the conditions change. So what they do uh, is they have a series of cameras everywhere on the roads, uh, and they take photographs of everyone's uh, license plates at various junctures and then they use a computer to determine how long it took each license plate that they have photographed to get from point a to point b and they do what they call an average speed check and if you are driving too fast which you can obviously tell with some fairly simple math then mm. you get a letter in the mail saying you owe us 100 pounds now I have you know, those, those 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 word problems we all got in you know junior high that you know car leaves uh, Minneapolis exactly. going west at sixty miles an hour. Finally, someone in the real world has a use for those things. Right. That's good to know. But look, I have a problem with that, and yeah. uh, I have a problem with that. It's total surveillance. Right now, the IRS isn't quite doing the same thing, but I would have a problem with that if every day the British government said we are going to randomly flag fifteen cars uh, per minute and put them into our system and follow them. And that reason is not, as has been widely suggested uh, by the uh, apologists for the Democrats, uh, including figures such as Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland, that's not because I want people to cheat on their taxes. It's not because I cheat on my taxes myself. I don't. It's because I have a problem with government intrusion. Uh, I don't drive too fast. I have done, I'm sure. But I don't as a matter of course. Uh, that's not why I object to the British government tracking every car in the country. 
Well, to I've, give you an even more sort of radical example is that all modern cars have GPS in them. We could, if right. we wanted to, have a system in which we had 100 percent uh, ticketing for exceeding the speed limit because we know where your car is. We know what the speed limit is, where your car is, we know how fast your car is going. We could automate that you know, fairly easily, I would assume, and uh, and make sure that there was 100 uh, percent you know, compliance or oversight with that aspect of the traffic law. But obviously, I think most people would think that that would be a grotesque violation of privacy. Yeah, or another example of it. How many Americans have either an Amazon Alexa or the Google Voice Assistant product in their house? Even the those dumb th- ones, Charlie, well, that's how many. But even those who don't have iPhones, <laughs> and iPhones have Siri on them, and Microsoft phones have Katana, and Google has whatever that is. And... They call if it you, Katana? I think Google is Katana. I could be wrong. Uh, anyway, the, the point is not the name. The point is that... Isn't that the computer in, uh, <laughs> in Halo? I think, so. I think that's right. I think that's where it's from. Yeah. Um, okay. But the, the point is that you could, if you wanted to, weaponize that and cut down on domestic violence. There's a lot of domestic violence in the United States. I mean, yep. There's one, two million incidents a year. And if the government were unconstrained, uh, then it could say, look, this is a huge problem, which it is. Women are suffering all across this great land, which they are. And what we're going to do is we're going to constantly listen in in the background. And if anything seems out of the ordinary, if any particular words are triggered, uh, if any... uh, Voices are raised unusually if there is a discrepancy between the time of day and the sort of conversation happening. We're going to flag you and we're going to send the police to your house. It would work. I have no doubt that would work. I have no doubt that that would cut down on domestic violence. But I would also be against it. And again, that's not because I'm in favor of domestic violence or because I'm a domestic abuser myself. And I think this has been a little bit alarming because for some reason... The Democratic establishment and many in the media have decided that the only reason that you could be bothered by this is that you are a tax cheat. And the the analogy that I no have no one drawn, pleads the fifth unless they're guilty, Charlie. Oh, we're doing that too. But the analogy that I've drawn <laughs> that I think is the most interesting and shows the hypocrisy here the best is with stop and frisk. Stop yeah. and frisk, I thought, I still think, is unconstitutional. Uh, I was against it, but it worked. Stop and frisk worked. I, I just don't think that the police were allowed to do it. And uh, although I don't think that it is probably as mortifying to be audited by the IRS as it is to be stopped and frisked in public, I think that the approach behind increased IRS auditing and stop and frisk is, is similar. The argument is there are people out there who are committing crimes. They're carrying weapons that they're not allowed to carry, mostly guns, maybe some knives. And we will look for abnormal behavior that give us what we can class as probable cause, and then we will investigate them in the case of stop and frisk by patting them down, in the case of IRS audits by requesting more information. And I just think it's it's really strange that there are a lot of people out there who agreed with me on stop and frisk and shared the post that I wrote a few years ago. And I said, I think New York should stop doing it because it doesn't pass muster under the bill of rights. Uh, but then turned around and said, well, look at national review and look at Republicans and look at talk radio. Uh, they're 
covering for tax cheats. It's the same argument, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, I think there's always going to be a tension between the question of what is effective and the question of what is acceptable. So I remember someone telling me, a woman who was an academic, and I want to say she was in Damascus, but this was maybe back in the 1990s. Anyway, she's walking down the street, guy runs up, grabs her purse, runs off. And she just kind of, you know, looks around, doesn't know what to do. And the guy gets about a block and a half and there's a gunshot. And a second later, you know, police officer walks up and hands her a purse and the guy's you know, dead on the sidewalk. He just, the guy saw the crime and shot the uh, person at her and killed him. They don't, didn't have a lot of crime in Damascus at that point. Um, there are things that you can do that are really, really heavy handed that will produce results that people like, but you still don't want to do those things. Um, but, you know, that's not always an obvious open and shut question. There are some people who really, I think, would prefer a kind of, you know, Singapore model of uh, law enforcement and public orderliness to what we have in the United States. There are some people, I think, who really would prefer a more kind of Western European um, tax practice than what we have in the United States. And my understanding is that they're typically... Um, there's not a lot of attention given to privacy and tax oversight in, in most of the European Union. I think one of the most frustrating parts of uh, modern political discourse is that people try in all cases to bring the practical efficacy and the moral desirability of every single policy into perfect alignment. But of course, or they take the opposite approach, right? So when it's Something you like that's effective, well, it's un unacceptable. Or something that you like that's probably acceptable, well, it wouldn't work. Yeah. But, of course, a lot of uh, heavy-handed government does work. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's desirable. No, of course not. Um, so what do you think should be done at the IRS? Do you think we should just um, scrap it, start over, try to create a new revenue agency? Do you think we should... Uh, look to the Swiss model and try to devolve stuff to states or even municipalities. Uh, what do you think would be a better approach? Well, I'll answer that in, in part by praising the Republicans on taxes, which I don't normally do, other than that I agree with them in outline that they should be lower. You said that Republicans didn't want to do the work of simplifying the tax code. I'm not sure that's true, Kevin. I think Republicans don't want to do the work of balancing the budget. I think Republicans sure. don't want to do the work of cutting spending. I think Republicans don't really care about the debt. I actually think the last 40 years have shown a Republican Party that has tried quite hard to simplify the tax code and that has been either thwarted in its attempts to do so. For example, you know, Paul Ryan would have loved to get rid of the mortgage deduction. He'd have loved to mm -hmm. have got rid of SALT completely, but political concerns rendered that impossible, um, but have been thwarted at almost every turn by the Democrats. I think this is a Republican v. Democrat issue. You know, Reagan uh, twice simplified the tax code. It wasn't just tax cuts. There were some tax increases, especially well, in the, true, but, the later. But it's more complicated than that. I, th I think that was true up through about 2016. But now you've got a situation in which you know Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Donald Trump all have essentially the same view of carried interest well that's fine and that's a particular detail but if you look at the last major overhaul that the republicans uh, conducted in, in 2017 several steps in the right direction they and they definitely deserve credit for it yeah because it simplified that. the tax code once again what it didn't do was 
provide enough growth to offset the lack of revenue and they weren't prepared to cut spending and i'll criticize them for that all day but i do actually think they've been good on that um i don't think though however good you could be uh i don't think that you could get enough done through this political climate to get rid of the irs no so i mean i actually have a fairly modest proposal which is don't add eighty-seven thousand agents do fund the irs a little more but do so in order to increase the number of people who answer the phones and process the returns uh, and also upgrade uh, their computer systems i mean my my objection to the irs over the last two or three years but i not for my personal taxes but for the business i run on the side has been that they are unable to respond to questions. I mean, it's actually extraordinary. I didn't have a a question that related to my return. I had a question that related to an EIN number. Uh, The company name changed, but the EIN number stayed the same. We sent in the paperwork, and 10 months later, it hadn't been processed. Uh, Then when I call up to try and say, hey, what's going on? Can I ask for a status update? For probably five or six months, I got a message that said i'm sorry that our staff are you know buried under a, a, a unprecedented amount of traffic we can't take your call at this time and then the call cut off right for six months so my my irs horror story is this um it was last year the williamson's had an unusually good year and we had to write a check for like seventy thousand dollars or something at the end of the year in uh taxes and then we got a note from the irs saying that, well, you owe us $70,000. And so we call our tax guy and said, did we actually you know, send him the $70,000 we owe him? Yes, she did. They're saying, you owe him a different $70,000. Well, hell, what's that all about? So, you know, we go back and forth and they say, no, actually, you don't really owe us that and blah, 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 blah. But then we get, you know, the, you have five days to settle this debt or we're going to, uh, you know, put liens on your property and all that. And we couldn't figure out what the problem was. And I kid you not, the issue was that I forget which way it was, but our tax return was, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Williamson. And the check we sent them was Mrs. and Mr. Williamson. You know, the names were in different order, essentially. <laughs> and for some reason, they, they cashed the check, of course, but they couldn't figure out how to credit it to us because uh, the names and Social Security numbers were in different order on the um, on the tax return and the uh, and the um, payment we gave them. And uh, it took seven months to straighten that out or something. And we were on the verge of, you know, of having, uh, of having uh, liens put on our assets and stuff. Now, my, my main tax problem I had with the IRS in, in this life was entirely my fault because I just didn't file returns for like eight years once upon a time. And um, I'm literally twitching as you tell me the story. They eventually get bent out of shape about that. And, um, and you can ignore them for a long time. But once they contact the uh, payroll office in National Review and it becomes someone else's problem, then you've actually got to go do something about it. So, you know, it was it was funny, Kevin, because I wrote the that dumb post. thing is they, they owed me money. Of course, I would have gotten a return. I was just feeling not particularly um, ambitious about doing paperwork for a few years. there. <laughs> so uh, I wrote that post about the IRS and I said, Americans are right. I used the word terrified. I am terrified yeah. of the IRS. I said, um, Americans are, are right. Uh, to worry about this and an audit is costly and 
time consuming and it's scary. And one of our commenters on Anna said, this is dripping in flop sweat. You must be a tax cheat. And I laugh because <laughs> I'm about as far away from being a tax cheat as you can get because I'm so scared of the IRS. When well, I you're first super scrupulous about that stuff. And I think that kind of developed during your time here as an as an immigrant. Yes. Where you were just so worried about getting deported that you were a real eye daughter and T crosser and that that habit stuck with you. Yes, and now I'm a conservative journalist, and so I'm aware that they might want to... Uh... <laughs> no, I keep meticulous yeah. records. I don't take anything uh, that I shouldn't. Uh, in fact, when I first moved to America, maybe I've told you this before, uh, they uh, messed up my tax return, and I spent months trying to give them money, and they didn't know what to do with it. Of course not. Long story short, if you are a non-immigrant, but you have a visa... You don't get to take any deductions at all. I don't know if this changed in 2017, but back in mm. 2011, no deductions, no standard deduction, absolutely nothing. Really? You pay more than everyone else. I, for what it's worth, don't have a problem with that. You're essentially a guest working there as a yeah, visitor. Yeah, foreigners, that's fine. Yeah. So I very carefully ensured that when I filed my federal taxes, I took no deductions. And I sent in my form. And then I got a letter saying, you didn't take any deductions. We fixed this for you. And here's a refund. (laughs) And the refund was put into my bank account. It's the worst when they screw up your return for you. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, ah, so I just took an illegal deduction involuntarily on my federal taxes, and I start <laughs> looking up the law. What happens if as uh, a non-immigrant... Of course, it's, it's your fault. No matter what, it's your fault. Right. And the answer is that I could have been deported. Now, I think, looking back, the likelihood of that was pretty low, but I didn't really know that. I'd only been really? in the country a year. And so I called them up. I got this lovely southern woman, I imagine, down in Georgia or somewhere. And uh, I said... Hi, my name's Charles Cook. I'm I'm a non-immigrant, and you have given me $465 that I'm not entitled to, and I really need to get it back to you. And there was a pause on the end of the phone, and then she started laughing. And she said, <laughs> she said, you know, I've worked here for 18 years, and I've never had a single person call us and try to give us money back, which was funny. We had a good laugh about it, except she didn't actually know what to do in that situation. So what I had to do was file an amended tax return, even though my initial tax return was correct, an amended tax return, and write a letter that she said should be stapled to it, saying, please don't adjust this when you put it through the machine. And then the second time around, they ran it, and then I uh, wrote them a check for the amount that I wasn't allowed to have, and it all got worked out nicely, and I got a letter saying this is fixed. But Man, even when I was doing the right thing, I still ended up in hot water with the You know, we could probably tell these stories all day, but one of my favorites is my older brother. Um, this would have been, I guess, in the late 1980s, maybe early 1990s, sort of before information technology was as good and reliable as it is now. Got a tax return. I think he was supposed to get like $32 back and they sent him $3,200. They just left out the decimal, you know, put it in the wrong place. And, but he was, you know, he was, 19 or something so he naturally put the money in the bank and promptly spent it and it was years later of course and the irs finally figured out that um 
they had screwed up and naturally demanded the money back with interest and penalties and all that stuff because you know, it was their screw up but his fault. I have a lot of sympathy for those people. I must say, I uh, I understand that Democrats really liked the American Rescue Plan from last year, mm-hmm. uh, but I think Joe Manchin was right to kill the altered child tax credit system, which had the IRS putting money into your bank account throughout the year without you asking for it. Now, I understand, although I disagree strongly with, the case for it. If you're going to have a child tax credit, the theory goes, you don't need it in one lump at the end of the year to be spent uh, over the next 12 months. You need it every month. So why not have the IRS review your tax return from the previous year, deposit it in your account? We have the technology. The theory there, by the way, is obviously because you're poor, you're too stupid to handle money. And therefore, we're going to give it to you in little allotments rather than all at once because we'll know you just go out and spend it on liquor and tennis shoes. (laughs) But but I I profoundly oppose this, not just because I think it is unseemly and it creates bad habits to have the federal government sending you essentially a paycheck every month uh, Mm. rather than at tax time, uh, but because I know so many people who did not know that especially around the time of COVID relief checks, so-called, that that money was taxable. And so they got it in their account. They thought, well, this must be COVID stimulus money. And then when tax time came, it was factored into their return. And they said, ah, I owe this money. Um, and I, I just don't think that's a good practice to have the government putting you in a position in which you might end up owing more taxes than you had been accustomed to owing uh, or that were being taken from your paycheck yes there's a personal responsibility element you should know what's coming in and out of your account you should look it up Uh, but i think especially given that the government at that time was just sending checks out all the time it was it was a really bad idea yeah. Do you want to talk about the FBI and uh, Mar-a-Lago? I do. I'm I'm less eager to talk about this, but um, let's go ahead. Well, by the looks of it, people were pretty eager to read your post on it because uh, you know it seemed um, to be picked up everywhere. <laughs> it got um, tweeted by some lefty types with big followings, and so it drove a lot of uh, traffic that way. And uh, I was mentioning that I was on Jonah Goldberg's podcast, um, recorded it yesterday, but I guess it came out this morning, that um, there's, you've experienced this too, the the reluctant fan club syndrome, you know, where people, I normally wouldn't cite something like Kevin Williamson, who's an odious ogre, but this you really must read. Um, I always sort of detest that. But there is a a reverse version of that too, which is sometimes someone goes out and praises something of mine. You should really check this out. This is great. And I'm like, I like that, but did it have to be Matt Iglesias? <laughs> yeah. Did it really have to be Matt freaking Iglesias? Couldn't it have been somebody else? Or, and what, the other one was Dan Rather. And uh, Dan Rather, for some reason, has a pretty big following still and uh, of people who know that Dan Rather is still alive. Well, why Anywho. don't you outline your point? Because I have... A- well, my my point is a very minor point. So the FBI has its problems like every other police agency does. Um, I've written about these problems, mostly in the context of city 
police departments, but some in the context of the FBI and some in the context of the um, IRS. By the way, as I pointed out today, I believe I was the first person to write about the lowest learner thing at the IRS. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly why that was. I was on that conference call, I think, is what it was. And someone had suggested that I do it. Someone who knew that something interesting was going to come out of it. Anyway, um, Donald Trump is not the president of the United States. He is not some special person. He is Joe Blow. He's nobody. And the feds serve search warrants on houses in South Florida a lot. Now, normally it's the DEA because it's South Florida and it's not the (laughs) FBI. But sometimes the DEA gets the day off and the FBI has to go do it. Now, if it comes out that the FBI was acting inappropriately and that they're responding to political pressure uh, because Merrick Garland feels like he's got to do something and yada, 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 then fine. Heads should roll. I'm good with that. As far as I know, there's no evidence that's the case. Um, Trump is involved in this ongoing thing with the uh, records dispute where they've been saying, hey, give us the records back. You're not supposed to have these. And he keeps blowing them off. And if that's what this is really about, fine. Uh, We should enforce the law on people. Uh, It's worth noting that the current FBI director, Chris Wray, was appointed by Donald Trump. He's not, you know, some left wing lunatic, I don't think. And um, there are double standards in this stuff. But I think that our real double standard, our problem is that we don't enforce the law vigorously enough on powerful people. People do go to jail. People go to prison uh, for violations of uh, federal laws about handling documents. They don't do it often, but people do go to prison for it. There was uh, a guy, was it, he's an Air Force consultant or something that went in for uh, 30 months or something a few years ago for mishandling a whole bunch of documents. There's a pretty good case that Hillary Clinton should have been charged with something, um, although she wasn't. And uh, if the problem is that we have a double standard, that in and of itself is not an argument for being gingerly when it comes to enforcing the law on former office holders and political figures and people who may be candidates again in the future. I just don't buy it. So if someone's got, you know, some good evidence that the FBI is misbehaving itself in this case, fine. I mean, I certainly would be not surprised to learn it given the FBI's history with Trump. But um, as far as I know, that's all just speculation right now. So, and I, I kind of generally am put off by this increasing attitude that people who have some connection to the executive branch of the government are essentially immune from the law. I'm not responding to subpoenas. I won't, you know, cooperate with this investigation by Congress. And I understand that there are some separation of powers issues that come up in that stuff. There are no separation of powers issues that come up with former politicians and uh, former executive branch people. And I just think that we are way too accommodating of sort of... um, bumptious lawlessness on the part of people who have some attachment to the White House. And I think it should be stopped. I think Congress should stand up for itself and start to uh, reassert its prerogatives. So I agree with almost every one of your presumptions. I think I just filter them through one more layer. We talk all the time on this podcast about how presidents aren't kings and former presidents aren't kings. I don't like the fact they call Donald Trump, President Trump, he's not the president anymore. We don't need to re-rehearse that. And I would like to see us return to a Coolidge-esque executive branch. I also, and because of that, think that we should enforce 
laws against everyone. Of course, the president's not above the law. But I don't think reiterating that the president or former president or powerful people in general aren't above the law makes the case for a specific warrant. And I do think that uh, there is a a wrinkle here, and that is that when we are dealing with the head of the executive branch investigating or prosecuting the person who might be his opponent, we have to be careful. Uh, you wrote the post with the title, you know, Do We Believe Our Dogma? Is that right? Yep. Well, one of our dogmas is People that- don't like the word dogma, by the way. They think it means like... Um- Stuff that nobody really believes when it actually kind of means the opposite. Yeah, no, it means the opposite. One of our dogmas, and and, and it should be one of our dogmas, is that we have equality before the law. Another one of our dogmas is that people in positions of authority aren't supposed to abuse it or use it for political ends. And I'm not saying that Joe Biden did, but I am saying that that does make the decision process for the White House or the DOJ or the FBI a little bit different. And I think we can tell that by looking at it the other way around. I don't think that Donald Trump is special. I don't think that he is a king uh, or a saint. I do think, though, that former presidents have more of a responsibility when talking in public, for example, than most people do. That doesn't mean they're better than most people, but it does mean they're different. If Joe at the bar stands up and says, I think this country is a banana republic, I think we should have a civil war. That's bad. But if Bill Clinton does it, I think it's a real problem. And I think Bill Clinton has a different responsibility than Joe at the bar not to behave like that. And as a result, I think that government has a a, a responsibility to understand how things look and seem uh, when it's acting. And Mm. I... Look but you what, realize that what you're doing there is asking them to politicize themselves. No, I'm saying that the rules that they must follow must be neutral. And uh, it's not obvious to me that what happened in uh, Mar-a-Lago was. For a start, if it is the case that uh, Donald Trump has violated the Presidential Records Act, then he should be prosecuted, but only if other people in similar situations would be prosecuted. Now, you mentioned Hillary Clinton, slightly different law, same canon of law. She wasn't prosecuted. Maybe she should have been. But the reason that she wasn't prosecuted was that the prosecutors in that case said, well, we wouldn't prosecute a normal person. Whether Mm. that's true or not, The argument was, this is not the sort of case that usually brings a prosecution. It didn't even bring a search warrant on Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton's house was never searched. And I think it's reasonable to ask, and I don't know the answer. I I reserve judgment. But I think it's reasonable to ask, well, why then was Trump searched? I think it's reasonable uh, to compare Trump to other former presidents and say, why is he the only one who has ever been searched? Now, the answer might be because he's done something absolutely heinous. I don't know. They haven't released the affidavit for the warrant. Does it have to be heinous? Isn't it enough just for it to be illegal? I think it has to be illegal and the sort... Well, I think a lot of conditions actually have to be met that I would apply to everyone. First off, it has to be the sort of crime for which a normal person would have 
had a search warrant executed on her. Because that's the whole point, isn't it? If if they would do it to me, they should do it to Trump. Uh, they shouldn't do it to me and not to Trump, but they also shouldn't do it to Trump and not to me. I also think that as a rule, and this isn't Trump-specific, but I think as a rule, search warrants should be used when you don't have a choice. Uh, a search warrant should be executed if you think that the material you're looking for is needed in a timely way, either because it's going to be destroyed or because it's going to be... Flushed down uh, an airplane toilet, perhaps. Yeah, or if it's going to be used in a crime that is imminent or if uh, it's uh, likely to be uh, moved. Uh, and you should only do this as a surprise if you can't get those documents from the person without... Uh, uh, without doing so, uh, without giving them notice. I mean, uh, you know, we talked about the IRS. The IRS writes you a letter saying, please, could you send us these receipts? It doesn't storm your house. I mean, maybe it they would after... Sometimes. Well, it would after a long time, but that's not the opening move. Um, again, I don't well, know what happened... that happens. wasn't the opening move here either. Well, we don't know because we haven't seen the affidavit. And it, frankly, I mean, it, it could it could be that Trump killed someone. But we someone. do know that the archive has been requesting stuff from him back. Yeah, yeah sure, but we don't know why... And he's failed to comply with that. Um, yes, uh, and we don't know why they raided him. Uh, that, by the way, is true of an extraordinary number of people who don't get uh, searched. You said raided. <laughs> I said searched. <laughs> that's not funny. But anyway, that, that's my view on it. I, I, Did I say raided? Yeah, I think so. But, uh, yeah, I kind of dislike that word in this case just because, well, it's not entirely appropriate. But um, yeah, so maybe we don't disagree about this stuff that much. Um, although I think maybe um, you're being... Um, giving excessive deference to political sensibilities where I wouldn't. Well, I think I am weighing two golden rules in American life and trying to find a path through them. And there is obviously a circumstance in which it would be necessary to uh, show no deference at all. But, you know, it, it's it if it's important that people believe that the laws apply to everyone equally, which it is. It is also important that people believe that the incumbent government is not abusing its power to get at its political rivals. And I, I sure. worry a little bit that this raid was gung-ho and that we have done a great deal of damage to the latter principle. And do you have some reason for that worry or is it just sort of a... Because it feel? was unprecedented. And if there was a good reason for it, I will happily say so. Okay. I mean, so, I don't buy the argument. So no, so no real reason. Well, I, I don't think that's no real reason. I mean, I think that if... I mean, no specific reason. Well, I, I don't know what happened. But I know historically that no former president has ever had his house searched by the FBI... And I know that the last person who was embroiled in the sort of law-breaking that we're led to believe Trump has engaged in did not have her house searched. Yeah. And so I'm saying there had better be a good reason for it. Otherwise, people are going to think that this was... A couple of quick observations. Driven. Um, you know, we're not talking about speeding here. And former presidents are a very, very small data set. Uh, now, a larger but still small and unusual data set is the population of people who have the chance to violate 
laws related to federal documents, classified information, that sort of thing. So, you know, we're talking about um, a small enough group and a small enough number of interactions that having outcomes that are, in your view, unprecedented shouldn't really be all that surprising. Well, is that true? I mean, Bill Clinton's house wasn't searched when he was under investigation for perjury and Richard Nixon's house wasn't searched when he was under investigation for Watergate. He might very well have been if he hadn't been pardoned. But, you know, I mean, Sandy Berger was convicted, albeit of a, of a misdemeanor. We've had other people convicted under these laws. It's not as though nobody ever goes to jail for this stuff. As I say, my, my interest here is in navigating through so that both of those dogmas, as you would put it, remain intact. And I'm a mm. little nervous. I'm also nervous because while I don't know what happened, I've seen quite a lot of people who I wouldn't expect to have said, ah, say, ah. Uh, the Republican response has largely been hysterical and silly. The presumption is that Donald Trump could do no wrong. Yeah, well, the, the idea is that Trump could do no wrong and that this must ipso facto be uh, political. And it reminded me of the claim made often in 2015, 16, even into 2017, that if the Trump administration went after Hillary Clinton, that that would per se show that we lived in a banana republic, which is absolutely yeah. ridiculous. Um, but I think it is telling that the response to this on the Democratic side has been muted and that a good number of law professors who really don't like Donald Trump have said, oh, this had better be about more than the Presidential Records Act because that would not be in keeping with standard procedure. Gotcha. You know, one other thing about the Banana Republic thing and a point that I think is really underappreciated and it should probably enter in the conversation more than it does, is that in most of North America, it's really hard to grow bananas. 